Okay, this is Kirk Kovac. I'm here for Politics NC, and I'm talking to Representative Robert Reeves. He represents the 54th District, parts of Chatham and Durham counties, and he's also the Deputy Minority Leader in the House for Democrats. Robert, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Kirk. So uh, the first thing I wanted to touch on briefly is I know you're newly reelected. Is your third term? This is my third full term, fourth term altogether. Okay. So we just had the elections in November. It feels like forever ago now, but it wasn't that far removed. And Democrats did pretty well yes. in North Carolina. Took back a lot of seats in the House and the Senate. Broke the supermajorities both. So could you maybe talk about what Democrats did well maybe last year? Or was it more just the environment that they ran in? Well, I think it was more than the environment. Um, first, I want to make one correction. I actually represent all of Chatham County okay. in a little part of Durham. I know so it's always changing. Yeah. I don't want anybody to think that they don't have to vote for me in Chatham. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what I really think it was, because the environment, instinctively, you think that the environment was favorable for Democrats. And there were some good things. And I think the environment factored in for turnout. But if you actually look at the numbers, just as Democrats had one of the highest turnouts that we've ever had in an off-year election, Republicans actually had the same thing. Right. I think that uh, the, the instinct for a lot of people is to think that Trump motivated one or the other or both bases. But either way, if both sides had real turnout. What I think the big difference was is this is the first time that we've had 170 people running for 170 seats. Right. Yeah. And I think that just changed the entire environment. So to me, strategically, it was a, uh, a much better um, move. Well, Democrats yeah, I mean, that's that's a thing that is sort of you don't think about it, but it's like the first step. If you don't have somebody running in a district, you're not right. going to win right. that district. So even in these districts where nobody really stands a chance in one party or the other, you know, you got to run somebody just to give people an option in the right. election. Exactly. And I think that's what changed the environment, because traditionally what had been going on since the Republican takeover of 2010 is they've always had the uh, ability because of some of these safe districts that they've had to have people in these safe districts be able to raise a lot of money for the caucus right. spread and then it around. turn around and spend that money in races all over the state. And so this time, a lot of that money had to stay home. And that's, and that's a good uh, tidbit there as well. You know, if, if, if they don't have to spend money in their own race, they're going to give it to somebody who needs it. And exactly. that's going to be a competitive race that exactly. either side could win. Well, I know a lot of the, the successes Democrats had in this last election were in suburban areas. I know Raleigh has almost all Democrats in the legislature, and I think Charlotte, for the most part, except for like one senator, I think, right. are all Democrats. So one one thing that goes through my mind is a lot of these you know, hotly contested races that Democrats were able to win was great, and they were able to break the supermajority in the House and the Senate. But when you talk about 2020 actually going after the majority— can they do that and still, you know, defend these tight races and actually go after more targets? Or is that something that we'll have to wait for maybe uh, more equitable districting? Well, equitable district, district redistricting would help us. Right. But uh, frankly, I believe 2020, we can do it even on the maps that we have right now. I think the reality is, is where we've gotten lucky is you've got some really gerrymandered districts. Um, in fact, ridiculously gerrymandered at some points. But the flip side of that is you can't stop the changing demographics. And what's happened, especially in these rural counties that touch urban centers, is they're getting a lot of the overflow population. 
yeah. which is in, in some ways changing the demographics of those districts, therefore making those districts more favorable and more competitive. What I firmly believe is that we do well in competitive districts. I don't think our problem is in districts that are competitive. I think our problem is it comes up in districts that are just so slanted that there's not much you can do where people just overwhelm you with their numbers as far as Republican versus Democrat. So in my opinion, based on the numbers and the turnout that you saw this year, because again, recognizing that you had a record turnout on the Republican side too, in my opinion, in 2020, we're in great position to be able to take the majority back in both chambers. Now it's going to take a ton of work. It's not one of those things where I say, if it doesn't happen, I'm shocked. Yeah. But on the flip side, I do think it's something that can be done. Well, I think part of that has to be what the newly elected Democrats and with their bigger minorities do in the upcoming legislative sessions, and particularly with the ability to override vetoes not existing anymore right. for the Republicans. So they lost the supermajority. You know, now it, obviously, if if a bill passes, governor vetoes it. Before they could just pass it again with just Republicans, but now they're going to need either Democrats to help them sustain that veto or they won't be able to do it at all. So what do you think of as places where Democrats can either work together with Republicans in the next few years or places where maybe Cooper and the Democrats can stake out a position and actually show, you know, Democrats have had so many years where they couldn't do anything in the legislature as far as passing legislation that they wanted to pass. Mm -hmm. So how do you position yourselves for 2020 to say, this is what we'll do if we get power back? I think one of the first things that we've got to do is make sure that we're clear on what our message is as to who we are. And the way that you do that will be recognizing two things. One, that we're still in a, a minority. And I think that's important for us and a lot of our supporters and a lot of our stakeholders that are involved with us to understand is that we are still in a minority, so we can't necessarily lead on policy. But what we can do is support areas where we do have bipartisan um, support. So, for instance, the first thing that at least is on my mind for this session is Medicaid expansion. There's really not a good rational basis not to do it. You don't have any area of layperson support where nobody wants to see that happen. And I think a lot of the reasons that it did not happen about eight years ago now is those reasons are gone. And so you hope to see something done with Medicaid expansion. I think secondly, independent redistricting. If there was a vote allowed on the floor today, then independent redistricting would become a reality. And independent redistricting would make better government. There is no issue, no anything about the fact that that changes the entire scope and the way your government operates. And if you want better government, independent redistricting is the way, but that vote's got to get allowed. So I think those two areas immediately are ways that Democrats can show this is what we would look like if we were in charge. And again, just by our positions, actions, and discussions, we don't want to be known as the party of no. I, I've always been disappointed in politics when I see people who can only give you negative input, but they can never give you any kind of positive input to tell you, not only do we think this is a bad way to go, but here's the way that you should go and here's some ideas how to make it better. And that's what I hope that we do a lot more of this session. And I think because of the fact that we've got even numbers and we don't have a supermajority anymore, a lot of the bad government that you've seen goes away. 
we hope. So for instance, the lack of committee work. I hope now that you see full robust debate in committees. I think, I hope you see bills actually go through committees instead of all this that we've seen where a bill breezes through a committee, goes straight to the floor for a vote. Nobody's had any chance for input. I want public input and we want to see that. So I think that's one opportunity that Democrats have. I think the other thing is to have, again, full robust debate when we have bill, full robust input into things like the budget. Last year, that budget got written in a back room with a couple of legislators and a couple of lobbyists. Nobody saw it, including the majority of the Republican Party. Yeah, We can't have that type of thing. That's bad government. If you came out with a perfect budget out of that process, that's still bad government. The people of this state elected 170 people to represent them. Those 170 people should be involved in the most important document that we produce, and in fact, the main reason for our existence. So that's where I hope Democrats will be able to show this is what it would look like if we were in charge, and this is why you should have led Democrats in 2020. Right, and, and when you talk about the budget, that will be the biggest battle in the next session, probably at the end of the year. They'll Definitely. have to pass a new budget, and again, with the ability of Governor Cooper to veto that budget, do you have any insight, you know, either personally or from conversations, about what the biggest battle in that might be? Probably, I mean— education spending maybe or do you think that's it i have my thoughts and beliefs i would never presume to know what the other side is thinking right um i would expect education is going to be a hot topic again um, because there's been a little bit of a shell game with education spending and i think we'd like to see real investment investigate in, in education and i mean real investment because i mean what you're doing is investing in human capital and we've got to stop treating it otherwise and so i want to see us invest more in the citizens of our state through our education system um, I would imagine healthcare is going to be a big issue because one of the other issues that we have is we don't know what the federal government healthcare system is going to look like right. going forward. And so therefore we need to be flexible enough and ready to respond. But we also need to, again, let that money that's sitting out there, that's our money, come back into our state to help fund not only our healthcare system, to make sure our citizens have good healthcare, but also to make sure that we're using every economic engine that we can for economic development. Right, and a lot of those things are interconnected with education. You're building the workforce for tomorrow. Exactly. And then if you're talking about expanding health care to North Carolina citizens, that goes hand-in-hand hand with what the Attorney General is doing, trying to fight the opioid crisis. You know, having access to health care is really powerful yes. in combating that. Yes. Um, I did want to ask something I, I was just thinking about the other day. We've had a lot of different large companies consider coming to North Carolina and yes. ultimately do not come. And that's even with all these tax cuts that the Republicans have enacted over the past few years. Do you think there's something happening in North Carolina specifically that's making them second guess investing here? Or do you think it's something that, you know, other state might just be more attractive? Or I think maybe the elephant in the room, a lot of people will say they don't trust General Assembly to do things on the up and up or some of the legislation that they have enacted that addresses more social issues that just aren't really in line with the visions of these companies. So what do you think that is? <clears throat> Again, that requires just speculation beyond right. anything I can do. But what I can tell you is this, is that I end up, uh, because of this position, I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of businesses that we're trying to recruit, a lot of members of those businesses, a lot of the lead people who make the decisions or help to form the decisions for these businesses. 
And you hit the nail on the head initially. I do believe that there's a sense of distrust. I think you've got some businesses that come that they they tend not to lean towards one policy or another, one side or the other, but there are things that they need to know that they've got continuity and they need to know that we're investing in our people because what they want to do is they want to be able to come to a place and tell their higher up employees, this is a good place to bring your families, to look at the workforce that they're going to be recruiting that'll be local and know that that workforce is as prepared as it can be to jump into these jobs. And we got a great community college system. I think that North Carolina excels in that area. But again, we've harmed ourselves with our lack of K through 12 education spending and with the money that we're taking out of our UNC state system. And it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate when you sit down and look at the numbers, the K through 12 spending gets tons of attention, but the money that's been cut out of the university system is, is equally important. And we've got to address that, but companies are uncomfortable, I believe. And again, I can't speak for every company and nobody will come back and tell you, Hey, Robert, these are the reasons we didn't like your state, but what you see in other places are less emphasis on social issues more emphasis on investment, more emphasis, less on the tax structure and more on the fairness structure. Most corporate citizens want to be good citizens in the communities. They understand that they've got tax obligations. They understand that they've got other investment they need to do in communities. They want to be treated fairly. And unfortunately, when you concentrate on just one area, what you do is you become a little short-sighted at times as to what all they want. And so again, I can't presume to tell you why each company made the decision they did. Um, I've been so proud of the governor and his ability to overcome some of these fears and his ability to recruit, his ability to really get companies to focus on all the great things we've got in North Carolina. But again, we're gonna have to show, in my opinion, more consistency from our leadership in the things that matter to these companies besides our tax structure. Yeah, and you know that it is a bit of an unfair question because I know um, Governor Cooper was on NC Spin with Tom Campbell the other day at the end of the year, and 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 he he emphasized that you know there are a ton of companies that have come. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is we focus on the ones that did not, exactly. you know, like Apple and Amazon. But there are tons. I think it was uh, I want to say AutoZone maybe, but some company came and it, you know it was like a thousand jobs or something like that. Yes, I mean, I, and I'm telling you, he is it, watching what he's done since the passage of HB2 when we really started seeing the bleeding has been amazing and he does and and the thing is is that he gets in these companies that you don't really know who they are you don't know their names they're bringing tremendous investment they're bringing tremendous opportunities and we don't concentrate on us we concentrate when we lose like when we lose yeah. Amazon you know the Amazon is an outlier um, I don't I don't think that decision seemed to have as much to do with these factors as some of the other decisions may have. I think if you look at the incentive package um, and tax package that was given to Amazon when they finally did decide to locate, I don't know that North Carolina could or should have right. done anything. Well, that's another question, that. too. Right. How much money do you want to pay right. to get someone exactly. to come? And so, you know, again, I'm definitely not advocating for that, but you do look at some of these companies that are more popular, like the Apples and things of that sort, and wonder what are some things we could have done differently. I think about when we were recruiting um, you know, the Toyota plant, things of that sort. So, so again, we've got to listen 
as much as we talk and act. And what that means is sometimes you can presuppose what it is somebody wants. Sometimes you just need to listen to them and find out what they want. Yeah. And I think that that's what's happened with the tax discussion is we've gotten so bogged down in the tax discussion that we haven't asked, well, what are the other 10 to 15 factors that you consider and what can we do to make those factors better? Well, like you, nobody learns anything when they're speaking. Exactly. So, you know, sometimes listening does more for that. I would switch gears a little bit. Part of what you talked about a few minutes ago when we mentioned maybe how the legislature might run differently this year with maybe hopefully more transparency in the processes that go on there. And I read the other day, Colin Campbell wrote in the News and Observer uh, an editorial piece talking about how I think it's Paul Coble wanted to move the press from their prominent position on the ground floor down some far corner of the basement. Uh, from what I read, also Tim Moore and Phil Berger, the you know leaders of the House and Senate, didn't really have much insight into that. Do you know any reason why, any legitimate reason why they would move them down there? And I read something about it being a space issue for representatives, but they've been there for a long time, right in the middle, haven't they? They have, and I, I can't begin to answer that question. I, I believe, as you, that that didn't come from leadership in the General Assembly, that that seemed to be an assessment that was made and rather independently. And I, I have not heard to this date any reason why that was necessary. As far as accommodating space, we got the exact same number of people we had 20 years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, there and there are other areas, uh, frankly, I actually had a chance to talk to one of the Republican leadership about some of the other areas that you could make space if we needed to make space. So there are other areas that we've got that we can make space and use that, that other than putting the press down. And I think that makes things really difficult for a lot of press members. It's a tough job as it is. And then beyond being a tough job, I think the big problem that you've got is you, things move quickly and you need to be able to be nimble and have access to those things. And, you know, and going from having a good location where you can get everywhere you need to go pretty quickly to suddenly being down that basement, I think it's going to be pretty difficult. Well, that is about all the time we have. I know you got to get off to another of your various swearing Swearing's in, I guess, like Attorney yes. General. But um, thank you so much for coming up to Thanks talk to me, me today in Raleigh, and we'll talk to you soon.